0: Hello, if you enjoyed this podcast, you can support us. Just need to click on the link and become an ACAST supporter. It's a one-off donation. You can give as much or as little as you like, and uh, there's no commitment. But it certainly helps us to keep producing these podcasts. So thank you very much.
1: Selling a little or a lot? Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com work. Shopify.com work. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Ideas in Writing
0: Hello, I'm Phil Holden and this is Ideas in Writing. The podcast about books, words and why people write them and how people write them. And that's especially true of this, the ninth episode, can you believe it, where I'm I'm talking to the Emmy award-winning author, David Quantic. Uh, It's a name you might know, uh, but you probably don't have uh, very much of a mental picture of him. He's one of the uh, creative minds behind the day-to-day, or is he? Um, Veep, he definitely is and uh, a series of uh, really insightful books about writing, as well as his own radio and television projects and novels. Um, Since talking to David, I've now read All My Colours, but uh, at the time, I'd read Night Train, which we concentrated on. And it's a, it's a strange, unsettling book, uh, difficult to categorise, because it has something of the uh, sci-fi dystopia about it, as well as being horror and some kind of uh, psychological thriller, which opens with the central character waking up in the dark with no memory of how she got there on a train hurtling towards, well, no one knows. Now, normally when I do these shows, I edit them to make the conversation sound effortless and but mainly to make me sound intelligent and witty. And that takes a long time. Um, In this case, talking to a comedy writer, I made the mistake of trying to tell a joke. It, It wasn't an original one. Some friends of mine will recognize it. But it landed like, well, let's just say it never landed um, so after the recording, I jokingly said to David that I cut that bit out, but he insisted that I keep it in. And I think he thought it was even funnier than the attempted joke itself. And he's probably right. So um, I stand by my uh, embarrassment and uh, you can listen to the full audio effect of a fatal case of cringing right at the end of this recording. Um, we uh, we discussed all kinds of things about surviving in the 80s on supplementary benefits, the inventors of such words as saddo and shitgibbon. um, why uh, being a writer is like doing a poo, um, how you go about writing the next Harry Potter, why he realised his uh, book Night Train might be based on The Wizard of Oz and uh, it's an interesting diversion on what changes uh, you make when you adapt a book for a film i decided that this kind of comedy david writes and his approach to his storytelling was summed up by the word absurdism and david uh, absurdly it came along with the word wednesday which uh, which word led to my recorded death at the end of here so anyway here we are absurdism wednesday with david quantic So hello, David Quantic. Thank hi, you very much for joining us.
2: Hi, Philip. Nice to meet you. How are you? I'm very well, thank you.
0: Are you are you keeping busy?
2: Yeah, I am. Lockdown hasn't really affected me work wise. I just still sit in front of a computer all day typing.
0: Yeah. How does that feel? Do you
2: do you get bored with that? Not really, no. I don't think I'd be doing it if I was bored with it.
0: <laughs> I think um and so the reason reason I uh, I wanted to talk to you, I think, um, and perhaps you wanted to talk to me, was particularly about Night Train, which is the latest novel of yours. And I think maybe we'll come on to that later on. But I have to say, I, I enjoyed it very much. And I, I, as I think a number of other people have um, commented, uh, I like they read it in one sitting because I, I wanted to find out what happened. Is that is that a common experience with that book?
2: Um I have seen, like you, a few people say that. Yeah, I'm. Um, I'm quite surprised because it doesn't it seem that short.
0: No, I don't think it was I I don't think it was a comment on how short it was. I think it was, you know, desperately wanting to get to the next chapter and find out what you know. It's it's. Um, uh, well, as I say, we'll come back to it maybe. We'll come back to it hopefully towards the end. Um, but I, uh, the other thing, I mean, I, you're on you're on Twitter like me, so it's. Uh, uh, you always, I think, I always feel when I speak to someone on Twitter that I sort of know them. And actually, you probably don't. You just know uh, what what gets them angry. But that's how we made contact. And uh, I've, as I say, I've got copies of your your book here. And I, I knew your name as, uh, I guess, a television writer first and foremost. And do you consider yourself as that? I just think
2: of myself as a writer, really. But most of my career. Has well, it's all been a bit mixed, really. I started off writing about music in 1983. Then in 1986, I started writing sketches for television. So they've kind of run in parallel, really. I I still do some music journalism, but now I try and write novels as well. So just a writer, really.
0: Yeah. Um. So we uh, uh, we're at the same age. I, well, I think you're probably in the school year before me. Um, a bit. Uh, you were born in Yorkshire, is that right? And then,
2: yes, I was born in Wortley on the outskirts of Sheffield. Yeah, my mother had moved there to have me because she came from a community in Long Eaton. I was, and then I was adopted um, by my birth parents, my mum and dad, who were from Devon, and they moved back to Plymouth with my sister shortly afterwards. So I've got no connection with Yorkshire, but it is quite no. nice. To pretend I'm from Yorkshire to annoy people from Yorkshire who think that being from Yorkshire is in itself interesting.
0: <laughs> I, was, I was, I think most, I think the majority of guests I've uh, I've had on the podcast have actually been born in Yorkshire. Strangely, that
2: is bizarre. Um, Where were you born? It is
0: bizarre. Well, I was born in Lancashire, the other side of the Pennines. Um, but we uh, we must have overlapped at uh, UCL. You were at University College at the same time as me, then I guess. Oh right,
2: yes. What were you doing at UCL? Uh, anthropology. Oh, right. Yeah, I probably
0: wouldn't so, have met in, you. No, I was in that little building on the corner, you know, by uh, Mallet Street. Oh, yeah. It was like, like a little house on the end there. Where was the law section? Is that the Bartlett School or is it something? No, like it was a
2: place called Thorn House. It was opposite the Quaker building. So it was away from the bulk of the college. But if you fired a rocket from Euston Station at the Quaker building, it would hit Thorn House shortly afterwards. <laughs> it was right. a nice sort of 1930s Art Nouveau or Deco building. And most of the law students never left it or went into UCL, but me and my friends used to like go into the student union and I used to do the discos there for a while so.
0: Oh, did you? What in the, oh yeah, that sort of, was it like a four-story building, wasn't it? Yeah, it
2: was the headquarters the, yeah. of the Free French during World War II, apparently. Was
0: it? Because uh, I did work in the bar there for a while. Oh, um, right. Uh, not that I remember much about it um, did you ever get involved in the uh, University of London Union On I wasn't uh,
2: involved, Street? well I mean I was involved in the sense that I used to go there and see bands yeah. in the post-punk era and I used to see Ricky Gervais in there a couple of times but I think I'd known Ricky at UCL very slightly oh, wow. but he looked quite different when he was working at Yulu um, and Couple of times after that, I met him and didn't recognise him. I think he was quite annoyed.
0: <laughs> so, I mean, you were clearly interested in music. Would you describe yourself as a as a music nerd?
2: I'm um, more interested in the music. Yeah, I would say that uh, I don't know about upset. I don't really care about you know records or record collecting, but I really do love music. Yeah, and have a large record collection. But most of my music is on a computer now because right. finals all right but it's you have to get up <laughs> yes
0: yeah but uh so were you the same about comedy or was comedy not really a kind of a major thing in your your time at uh at university
2: it's just different i mean with comedy yeah there are people that i was really obsessed with and shows that i really liked but i think at that point unless you were american comedy wasn't a thing you were a nerd about now it's got mm. Oh, It's got a bit excessive people constantly going on about great comedians and analyzing sketches and stuff like that and slightly fetishizing it. But at the time, comedy was just what existed. And a lot of comedians like, I don't know, Bob Monkhouse and Frankie Howard, who are very talented, were just considered, you know, mainstream light entertainers. They weren't these cool cult figures that they have become. Yeah. So it was different. Music was more divided more divisive. Mm. You know, you had cool bands and commercial bands and all kinds. Whereas with comedy until alternative comedy came along, it was by and large, you know, everything was just comedy and funny. There were exceptions, mm. you know, there was the Oxbridge lot. But even then, you'd see John Cleese on the Les Dawson show. So, yeah, music and comedy were talked about in different ways in those days, in that one was talked about and the other wasn't.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I was listening to uh, Rory Bremner the other day, talking uh, in another interview, talking about uh, how when he was at uh, King's, comedy clubs were springing up and that was, a, you know, he could go and do three shows a night. And I was completely unaware of that happening when I was in London at the time, you know, for those three or four years. But it was clearly happening because it was exactly the same time you and I were there.
2: Well, in the union, not to obsess about UCL, but in the student union, there would be lunchtime concerts. I remember seeing Alexi Sale. I remember seeing Paul Merton. I remember seeing a very fat man who put his stomach in a plastic washing basin. (laughs) I remember his name. He was very good. But yeah, we used to get some of that. And I think like you. Well, that's an interesting thing. I didn't really go to comedy shows. Um, Wasn't really aware of that circuit, but I went to bands obsessively. Mm. You know, I go and see if I could afford it, a band every week, maybe twice. Whereas, and again, student life, it's on your doorstep. You know, it comes to you. Yeah. Oh, here comes some entertainment. You know, I won't go anywhere to see it because, you know, it'll come to the... I remember being quite affronted that bands often wouldn't play student unions because you know they were obviously gigs for students only uh, at that time i think i thought that was quite a sensible idea whereas as a member of the public i would probably disagree with that intensely
0: yeah and so uh, you you i gather you quite rapidly decided that law wasn't your subject or wasn't wasn't going to be your career
2: no i wasn't very good at it um i think i realised quite early on i had a minor revelation that I could be a solicitor, which I didn't want to be, or a barrister, which I didn't have the ability to be, or the money. And there I was in London, and I thought about changing courses, but didn't. But I was in London, and I was getting paid by the state and slightly by my parents to live in London very cheaply, and obviously wasn't going to get a better life than that. Um, so I stayed and finished the
0: degree, and then had no idea what to do with my life. So what was your what were your options then? What did you think your options were? <laughs>
2: Well, I took the civil service exam and did very badly. So that became clear to me that if I was a civil servant, I wouldn't get to hang out in the British Library. I'd be quite a low echelon civil servant, and that would be boring. And so I wrote to the editor of the Enemy, telling him how bad the Enemy was. <laughs> and he wrote back and asked me if I wanted to do some writing. So I did. So with that and signing on, Claiming supplementary benefit gave me a lifestyle.
0: When you wrote that, oh, sorry, when you got the reply from the then editor, well, can you put, cast your mind back to how that felt? Was it kind of? Did you look at this as an opportunity, a big opportunity, or was it just? Uh, I don't know. I mean, how did you see it?
2: Well, I've got to be honest and say I can't remember at all. Um, <laughs> no, that's. I not... <laughs> remember going into Virgin, the Virgin Megastore in New Oxford Street and buying a copy of The Enemy with my first review in and being really ex- well, really excited until I bought it. And then, obviously, the moment I bought it, it was like, oh, it's just uh, paper, <laughs> Yeah. but I'm trying to be excited. But, no, I was really excited at the prospect of a review appearing when it had actually happened. And it was quite an odd time for a while because we were very poor. Me and my flatmates lived in a very cheap flat that had no phone so I used to go and queue up to, for the phone box at the end of the street to call the editor of the NME, who may not even have been at his desk when I called. And I think we may have set up times to call. And I used to call up and ask for work. Yeah. quite extraordinary, like living in a village.
0: Yeah. Were you, were you doing other work at the same time, though, to make ends meet? Or was it just No, that I was your written, thing?
2: I had written a short mm. story for City Limits magazine and got 50 quid, and that was brilliant. And then I started doing reviews for them, but without the doll, without the supplementary benefit and housing benefit, I wouldn't have been able to live, mm. because I was making about thirty pounds a week from writing, and I think my rent was—I don't know—I can't remember—but probably not enough to live on.
0: Yeah, but yeah, it's, yeah. Casting my mind back, it—it it was. I mean, it seems very odd now that students. And I remember uh, in the holidays signing on Mm. and that seems seems really odd now doesn't it that you could get that support and
2: yeah i mean i just grew up with a generation where we took it for granted but
0: yeah for sure it
2: was a different culture but no you could say i mean i came from a holiday town well a tourist town so in in the summer i got a job and they were all quite weird jobs you know cleaning in royal marine camps or working in souvenir (laughs) shops or hiring fishing rods things like that to people yeah that was quite nice but yeah you every I think I just remember Christmas was the big one the end of the winter term you just go and sign on and go home but it is very odd I mean nowadays students have to pay to be educated and end up in debt and that seems to me ridiculous
0: Mm. yeah and and almost inevitably have to spend a lot of their time working uh, as well as trying to do all the other things you do at university. Yeah, it's uh, not great. But you, um, uh, so the the sort of, uh, I guess, the transition from being some kind of music journalist to writing comedy, how did that happen?
2: I do remember that I was trying to write stuff. Um, and I all I remember is that I, I sent some stuff to Spit In Image, Oh yeah, And I sent three sketches and Jeffrey Perkins, a producer who was quite a big figure in comedy. He produced Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and he mm. produced Father oh, 10, awful lot of shows in the eighties and nineties. And he wrote back to me and said he liked one of the sketches, which they bought. And that obviously encouraged me. I couldn't get much else on. I got the odd bit on spitting image, but I couldn't get anything else off the ground. Um, So I was still mostly a music journalist, but I do maintain my friend Kath Carroll, who was a musician and a journalist. I remember being at her house and watching some grim comedy and her saying to me that I, as in me, could write better than that.
1: Hmm.
2: And that was kind of a good thing to hear because instead of somebody saying you're good or you're bad, just saying you can write as well as this that's on television. And that was like, oh, yeah. So I don't have to be good. I just have to get on television or just have to be better than this.
0: Did you agree with her at that time?
2: I can't remember. I mean, I thought I was great. <laughs> I've always said, you wouldn't if you don't think you're great, you wouldn't do it. This world isn't really full of writers who go, oh, I'm quite good at writing. I should probably let people know how reasonably good I am.
0: I don't know. You may be surprised. I think there's probably quite a few people who, who write and apologise for writing and that, and well, I don't know. It's difficult to to be objective about it. I guess in the end, isn't it? Because you only need some people to like what you write. Oh,
2: you to, only need to... the people who pay you to like yeah. it. Yeah.
0: So you you um uh you ended up doing something with Armando Inucci. Was that's about the same time? Was it?
2: That's uh, *Sweating Image* was about 1986. Armando was yeah, about 89, 90. Because *The Enemy*, I think there must have been. I think I'd written f- reviews that were trying to be funny because there was a tradition of that. People like Julie Birchall hmm. had been extremely excoriating but funny. Danny Baker was a very funny writer. So there was a tradition of that. So I used to do that and take the mickey a bit. And then a writer called Stephen Wells, who was a seething Wells, a ranting poet, who was <laughs> quite extreme and very abrasive, said to me something like, you're the only person here who's almost funny let's do something together so we did a column for several years called culture vulture it changed its name a lot it was called ride the puffin and ride the lizard and and we enjoyed doing that and Armando Yanucci read it and mm. yeah and then he wrote to us and said he was doing a radio show called on the hour and he invited us to contribute to it so we did
0: so when you were writing uh those columns were, were you uh, consciously sort of uh, not copying, but I mean, aiming at a particular style? Was there a particular writer that impressed you and you wanted to emulate?
2: Not really, because we've both been writing for a while. We both had our own styles and we sort of evolved this joint style. that was, well, pretty much Stephen's style, which was very explosive and extreme with swearing and exclamation marks and mocking. I mean, the main thing was mockery because, well, the enemy wasn't that reverential. But it could be quite serious about things that it liked, whereas we were just rude <laughs> right, and conversely we were we liked things that the other enemy didn't like, so we liked Kylie Minogue when people didn't really like pop, and we'd mock Steve Albini and Marquis Smith and Morrissey, all these kind of readers' totems who were right. We'd just take the Mickey out of them, and it was very effective. Oh, I remember Marquis Smith asking the editor if me and Stephen were a gay couple, which was his way of coping with the fact that we were taking the mickey out of him. Um, yeah, it was great. We just used to mock people. Stephen invented the word saddo in those pages. I invented the word shitgibbon in those pages, so we contributed to the language. Wow, yeah. We got killed in an episode of, t- in a episode of Judge Dredd in 2000 AD comic. By a writer who didn't like us enjoying Kylie Minogue. Wow! It was a really nice time.
0: I hope you've got a copy of that comic.
2: Oh, I have. I put it framed on a wall.
0: Yeah, that's very cool. So, so that that so those sort of columns translated into the the stuff you did uh, on radio. Was that? Um, now I'm trying to remember who it was. Collins and Macconi was it? <laughs> Stuart Macconi.
2: Yeah, there was an element of that that I'd taken from. I mean, me and Stephen worked together for a while, but he was. quite a radical he was a radical socialist and unlike me he couldn't really bring himself to work for you know the kind of commercial tv shows that I didn't mind about so I had a more conventional route but I still retained a lot of that writing attitude so the columns I did for Collins and McCona you're quite right were an extension of that they were just me yet again being rude about Marky Smith and Morrissey and Paul Weller Mm joined the panoply as he revived his career and that was a lot of fun and that ended up being a column in Select magazine also called Quantix World All right uh, I still do columns and mine are a bit nicer now but I do a column in Record Collector which is in that tradition but it's more of an old man's version talking more about <laughs> music and liking things which is a new development
0: <laughs> I hadn't I hadn't uh, heard them first time round and I I looked up uh, some of them because there there are some audios on uh online of those quantics world i don't know whether you know yes,
2: that i've heard them yeah
0: put me in mind of some of charlie brooker's kind of rants um uh on his tv show so i don't know whether he's stolen those that uh shtick from you well i think there's
2: only one way of really writing a column like that so i think we're coming from similar directions
0: so to come back to um on the hour what what did you contribute to that were you did you, um, did you go into a writer's room and uh, get mixed up with other writers and told to contribute to a, uh, an outline? or How did that how did that actually work?
2: We'd go in and Armando's always operated a kind of two or three tier system. I think we'd go in and he would tell us what the show wanted, that he would have worked out with people like Peter Bainham or Chris Morris. And Stephen and I would go back and, you know, we'd write, say, a monologue for Alan Partridge or, say, an item about a financial crisis. We didn't really get a lot used mm. because I don't think we had a handle on the house style of the show. So we may have had nothing in the show. I'm not entirely sure. I tend not to talk about that because I like people to think that I wrote all of it. With <laughs> season, but I honestly don't know. I mean, it's quite weird because I did. I can say that I wrote loads of Alan Partridge very early on, but I don't think a word of it was used. Right. And when it came to the day-to-day, Stephen and I worked on that, and we had more input in the sense I think we wrote a scene where Alan put his hand on a woman's bottom. Um, We wrote in a famous routine called War, which is one of the biggest set pieces in the day-to-day. We wrote a cat on a shelf that caused a truce.
0: (laughs) Uh, Yeah, and where did that come from?
2: (laughs) Oh, it's just some troops had found a cat on a shelf, and they stopped fighting to look after the cat.
0: Actually, while you're talking about uh, Alan Partridge, you'll be aware of um, Richard Herring's uh, constant kind of chipping away at this, the idea that he invented, or maybe he and Stuart Lee invented uh, Alan Partridge and he never got credit for that.
2: Yeah, I've heard about this. I think they they reached a rapprochement in that Armando was directed, Stuart Lee's... Comedy shows and stuff like that, mm. but I mean all I know is I didn't invent Alan Partridge, so it's of no interest to me
0: oh about that time of course the um there was the um the writer's room wasn't there in I don't know whether it was called that in uh uh the BBC broadcasting house. did you ever go there?
2: well, there was a room. I think it had wood paneling. Um
0: there was a, there was a sort of open invitation for writers to contribute to weekending or one of those kind of shows.
2: Yeah, I went to a weekending meeting once when Armando was producing it briefly. Um it was all right. <laughs> it was just one of those ones where a lot of there were a lot of uncommissioned write non-commissioned or uncommissioned writers were there and it was a bit old.
1: Yeah.
2: In a, well, some people would be good, and some people would be like, "Oh, I saw a thing in the paper that would make a good joke," and I think somebody said that was six months ago, and they said, "Oh, was it?" <laughs> I don't know; it was a long time ago. And
0: okay, well, uh, well, uh, in that case, let's let's uh, let's zip through your CV <laughs> much more quickly because you you ended up, uh, I think, writing, I mean, all kinds of things, contributing to Brass Eye as well, which I suppose kind of follows on. From the day to day and a couple of other chris Morris things when you when you contribute to those things, I mean how much is it uh like you're saying with uh, with on the hour or the day to day you kind of write something and don't know if it's going to be used, or are you more involved in the the storyline and the decisions to as to what to include did, did, did that change
2: no, I mean I've never had a job. Um... <laughs> This is the main thing. I've always. I was never on the staff at the NME when I left college. I didn't have a job. Uh, me and Stephen were contributing stuff to On the Hour, and when I worked with Jane Busman, who I met on a pilot for a show that was never made called Now What. Mm. Yeah, when I met Jane, we worked together, but we were never. Oh, well, we were on the staff of a Graham Norton show, but by and large, you. Well, we wrote for The Far Show and we basically used to send them ske- send them sketches. And then I just remember being phoned up and somebody going, this is Paul. And I was saying, Paul who? goes, what else, you idiot? So that was the charming level we worked on with <laughs> him. But that was great. But no, I mean, a lot of, almost all my career has been sending things in and will it get used? Unless it was, you know, my own show or a show I did with Jane. And the same with, Bra- with Brass Eye. Chris is brilliant to work with Brass Eye. We'd go to his office and if it was sunny, sit on his roof or go to the pub. And he would tell us directly what he was after. And then later on with Brass Eye Special, there was a bit more trickle down. But most of the shows I've worked on have been a trickle down thing, you know, except more recently. Not to go over everything I've done, but like on the things I've done with Armando in the 21st century. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you'll be writing gags, but a few times, you know, I wrote I my name on my own co-written episodes of veep
1: oh, right, okay. which is
2: fantastic yeah but most of it has just been unless it's my show by and large has been here's what we want you to do try this a bit like leafleting you know here's a pile of leaflets go and see if anyone wants them
0: yeah speaking of which did you ever do the edinburgh fringe thing with collins and McConey we
2: did a show called lloyd cole knew my father right which we did two weeks of that. Steve Coogan said it was the best thing he'd ever seen at Edinburgh. But I suspect he was tired when he said that. And um, we <laughs> got a radio two page series page. out of it. So, oh right, that's good. That's a really good show. It's out there somewhere.
0: Yeah. So I'm I'm getting the impression that uh, a lot of the the writing, uh, kind of on your writing CV, is divides into kind of different kinds of work, doesn't it? Because you either you see something, you kind of contribute something on spec. Or somebody invites you to contribute, and you still don't necessarily know if they're going to use it. Uh, or, as you say, occasionally it's it's your thing. It's you. You know, you've been commissioned to create something, and you have much more kind of control and input, or and I guess responsibility as well. Is
2: that the case? Yeah, there's all different kinds of things. Really, um, sometimes it's quite nice to just send the odd joke in. That way, you don't get the blame if the show goes badly um i did a show called broken arts on radio four which was a massive massive flop and i was able to take the full credit for that (laughs) so it is swings and roundabouts
0: do you get i I, I don't know whether this may may be a question of your kind of seniority in the business but do you get paid for stuff that's not used as it were so you you know you send my maybe it's different in in your early days obviously i don't know how it works so uh you know, you send in an idea for a sketch or a sketch. Does somebody pay you?
2: Well, it totally depends. Um, there's a thing which is very common now called a buyout, which is simply that you are hired and everything you write belongs to the show and you can work your backside off or you can do very little. It does, makes no e- has no effect on the amount of money you get. That's extremely common, especially if the show is one where People like to believe that the star wrote it. So if you watch a show, I won't name any, where the, ska- the writers are credited as script associates or program associates. Right. That's because if you're credited as writers, that might affect your legal status or your financial status and also might affect the star of the show who believes that he or she wrote the show. By and large, the BBC used to have a bizarre system of payments for radio where you would get paid more if you had been doing it longer. Oh, really? which led to the absurd position of me and Jane Bussman working on a show receiving different rates of payment for the same sketches. So hopefully that's gone now. The main thing is it doesn't matter what system you're on, you won't make any money unless it's in America.
0: (laughs) So so it comes to my question. I think I asked this question of um, Ian Macmillan, obviously in a slightly different context, but how how do you make a living as a writer?
2: Well, you just do lots of work. Yeah, I did an interview with Gillian Reynolds, who's brilliant, the radio writer, and she asked me if I had a gambling problem because I did so much work Mm. and I must clearly need the money. But you just work a lot. And because I come from music journalism, I was used to weekly deadlines and I was used to writing a great deal of stuff overnight.
1: Mm.
2: So the whole thing of the author sat down writing a word and crossing it out it's always seemed a bit silly to me. If I've written a word, I'm not getting rid of it because that's one word yeah. I don't have to write, so I'll write some more. Yeah, you just work all the time. And so, I mean, I really admire people like Chris Morris who will have an idea for a film and will work on nothing else. Mm. And once he's made that, we'll then stop. And he's made, you know, he makes one, he's made two full-length features. I couldn't do that. I mean, I haven't made any features, so maybe I've got things a bit confused. But I rather prefer the Armando Yanucci plan of make a film, make a TV series, write a book, do a radio series. Yeah, because if you've got the time, and you should have, then you should try and fill it.
0: It seems, I uh, I guess you know this is not uh, it's not rocket science in one sense that lots of lots of people. And again, like I think um, uh, I think Ian McMillan said something very similar. He just wants to keep writing. He just, you know, it's a, it's a muscle that he has to use. Um, yeah,
2: I mean, I've always written. Even when I was a kid, I wrote, I just like writing. I don't like it, mm. but I think it's, I did wrote a book about writing called How to Write Everything. and another. I one was going to
0: come on to that, yeah. And so I how, do you, how do you write anything? I mean, well, it how to write anything or everything?
2: Well, there's two. And in the second one, How to Be a Writer, because ah. yeah. that was a different thing. I interviewed loads of people about writing. And Captain Moran said that basically being a writer is like doing a poo. You have to do it. and sometimes it feels nice and sometimes it's not it's very difficult but and it is like that it's like being sick it's like a bodily function you have to get it out Mm. and yeah i'm sure not everyone feels like that and i'm sure there are lots of brilliant writers who don't but i find it's a good way of
0: shutting my head up right is that an issue for you (laughs) yeah
2: i do think it's a good way of i think some people find it difficult to cope with the chaos of existence and I find mm. that writing, especially even if it's making things up, makes me feel a lot happier because you're creating order. There is no order; the universe is completely random, up to a point. But writing things yeah. makes you feel better.
0: Do you do you uh, do you buy that, or do you, I mean I, I accept what you're saying? I'm just wondering if you, uh, at some stage, think what I'm writing could make a difference or it could make things better for other people as well or is that not an issue
2: um I don't think so um it took me a long time to get around to writing because I thought what's the point everything's been written what's what does this add to anything yeah. as I say when my friend Kath said oh you could do better than this it was like oh okay well this is on television I write things to make money and so that people will enjoy them and sometimes I write things just because I've been told to I suppose that's money um yeah yeah the weird thing is realizing that it doesn't matter (laughs) you know you can nobody cares if you write it but you learn a lot from reading amazon reviews of books because it's clear that. oh really well people see unless it's just malicious people see people people read a book for loads of different reasons and the reviews will say things like you know oh i enjoyed this this was more exciting than i thought i wanted a bit of a thrill Some people are looking for meaning in books. Some people just want to kill half an hour. Some people specialize in reading horror. Mm. There's millions of different reasons. And, you know, it's like finding a partner. You just trundle along. And if you find someone who likes it, we used to, at the enemy, me and Stuart and Andrew, used to mock bands because one of the, they used to say things like, there's always been a dance element to our music. But the thing they always said was, we make music for ourselves, and if anyone else likes it, that's a bonus. Mm. And while that's true, it's also drivel, because people make music to be successful, or to be liked, or to get girls or boys, and if anyone else likes it, they're delighted. Yeah. So yeah, I'd love to write the next Harry Potter, or the next Miranda, or whatever, Yeah. but I'm not sure I'm able to, so...
0: Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, you can't. You certainly can't do it intentionally, can you? Although, at least I don't think you can.
2: Well, you can, you can have hit TV shows if you've got the right formula, but it's easier with that because you put famous people in it for a start, and that gives you a, a something else, or you hit popular trends. But yeah, when J.K. Rowling wrote Harry Potter, she obviously wanted it to be a huge hit, and she'd obviously planned it. But hmm. I can't say if she was surprised or not. But I don't think anybody expected it to be the biggest. If you had a time machine and said, in twenty years' time, the biggest book in the world will be a children's series about a boy wizard. Yeah. Or in twenty years' time, the biggest adult book in the world will be about a woman who likes to have a man do unpleasant things to her in an office, which Fifty Shades of Grey. Then mm. I mean, Fifty Shades of Grey is one of my favourite pop things that. Is it? Well, just because E.L. James who wrote it who worked for Vic and Bob, bizarrely, worked for Pet Productions. Oh, really? Yeah, she, I think she was a production coordinator, but she used to write fan fiction based on the Twilight movies for mm. her own entertainment. And then, I forget, I don't know the process, decided to publish them. Obviously, couldn't publish her own Twilight fiction because of copyright, so adapted the characters um, out of that And it was world. online, a it? It was online, it? Yeah. yeah. And I don't think she had any intention of world-class wealth and fame apart from hope, but that's what happened because, right, rambling a bit, but when I wrote How to Be a Writer, I interviewed two writers, Ben Aronovich and Andrew Cartmell, and they said to me, the only way to write the next Harry Potter is to have done it before Harry Potter came out. (laughs) Yes, yeah. (laughs) Because otherwise it's just a cash-in and people can't be bothered with that. Hmm. So that's the secret of writing is to accidentally guess what's going to be massive (laughs) three years before you write it.
0: So you may as well write what you want yeah. And hope that it, yeah.
2: I mean, there's a middle ground. I mean, I have friends who write detective fiction, thriller fiction, you know. Yeah. Their, genre fiction is great because genres, yeah, it'd be very, un, I can understand writing a horror novel just for yourself, but writing a, a police procedural for yourself would be a bit odd because it's a very commercial market. Yeah. It'd be like writing a soap opera for yourself. Yeah. Coming up with yeah. EastEnders and just, you know, performing it for your friends.
0: Yeah. So I'm just thinking about the, the, the next big thing, Cause I I read one of the reviews of your books. Unfortunately I haven't I haven't been able to read it myself. Uh I can't remember whether it was The Mule or another one where it was um it was likened to um Dan Brown but funny. Yes. Was that the Mule?
2: That. that was the Mule, yeah. Yes, that was um a nice review. It's not really true. <laughs> but it was in a way because it was about a man pursuing an art treasure to Paris. So, in that resembles, in that sense, it does. But then, I've just been pointed out on Twitter that both the films *Back to the Future* and *The Terminator* feature a plot where a man goes back in time only for his mother to fall in love with him.
0: <laughs> yeah. So, well, you know. I mean, if you believe some, uh, if, if you believe some script writing gurus, there's only so many stories. Yeah. I mean, Mark
2: Kermode's TV series was really good because it would show you that a romantic comedy might have the same plot as a heist movie mm. and vice versa there are only so many stories i don't think there's only seven
0: but then what becomes more important is the kind of uh, i guess the certainly the skill of the writer and, and i think also the the voice of the narrator the kind of voice of the of the book you know you can tell if a book has a, a consistent voice throughout and i think that you have to kind of like that voice that person
2: well i think this is yeah it's like the new statesman used to do writing parody contests and, you know write this in the style of graham green i always enjoyed that mm. because the thing is a book by martin Amis. a book i mean it, oh here's one there's a novel by kingsley Amis called one fat englishman mm-hmm. and it's about a fat english guy goes to america and is horrified by things and has sex with people and to some extent that's the plot of money by martin Amis. Yeah. And it always interests me when you see how different people deal with completely different subjects. Armando's David Copperfield's completely different to um, David Lean's David Copperfield and so on and so mm. forth. So I think that when people do buy something that I've written, it's because they like the sound, as you say, of my voice.
0: Yeah. And I think there is a uh, one of the things, I don't know whether this is a, a- a compliment or not i'm just trying to think of the of the way of saying it because i think there's something about the author as a character in a book that is important and i think very often uh, there's a sort of pedantry <laughs> if that's the right word that's 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 funny in your voice oh, that's interesting. do you know what i mean not really well okay so you were uh a, a um a, the narrator the storyteller will uh describe something and then undermine it by saying well it's not it's not really like that but oh, that's interesting. i had to i had to say that or you know there's there's a sort of um yeah I, I think the author the the yeah the author as a character in in your writing seems to me to be a thing i don't know uh, on my limited uh on my limited uh, awareness i suppose i oh. think that's one of the things that well i don't know i'll let you comment on that you if it's interesting, I shall have to check that out. Um,
2: I don't know. I get depressed a lot, so that probably comes over in the writing.
0: <laughs> Does
2: it? Yeah, quite lugubrious.
0: Yeah, like, um that's okay. I mean, I don't think it's depression. Well, I, d- I didn't read it as depression in any of the um, anything I've written of your uh, read of yours. Um, I was reading some of your free stuff on your website, which is a great set of short stories. Oh, thank you yeah I like yeah. writing
2: those mm. but yeah I wanted to I wanted to because to me, there's two types of short stories. there's the sort of the American style where everything's very moody and somebody at the end realizes that it was the happiest day of their life and a load of leaves fall off a tree, or there's a sort of horror science fiction ones, and I tend towards
0: those. Mm. I don't know why I think there's something about it's kind of the constraints of writing, isn't it the the that Engender creativity, you know, you've got to write in 500 words.
2: Yeah. In my writer, I discovered reading a Clive James thing. There's a writer called Contini. Um, I know nothing about them, but he said this great thing that the obstacle is the inspiration. Mm. That writing a a novel in rhyme isn't a restriction. It's not an obstacle. It will make you write something more interesting. Uh, That's why low budget movies are often better, because... Yeah, they force people to concentrate. The new movie, The Dig. I don't know if you've seen that, but
0: yeah, I've seen it. Yeah, yeah.
2: I loved it. And one of the things you realise is it was filmed under COVID restrictions, so it's very minimal. Um, There are scenes with overlapping dialogue. There's obviously a lot of shots they couldn't get, and it makes the film better because it for a considering it's quite a moody movie, Mm. it rattles along. Yeah, and I honestly think that if it had been filmed in normal times. But it's still been great but it would have been more expansive possibly yeah. more rambly and a bit more lush so mm. I think restrictions can be really effective
0: yeah I think that's something that other people have commented on uh, in in the sort of present uh, kind of TV world with Netflix and Amazon that um, uh, there's almost too much money in in some series you yeah. know they commission too many episodes and uh, they've got too much time to develop the story and there's a lot kind of very
2: long shows a lot of too many special effects yeah yeah just endless lingering beautiful golden showers of diamonds if that is a thing <laughs> I, I,
0: i'm sure i'm sure you know what you mean uh but yeah so um but the other thing that struck me about uh, and particularly reading night train um probably setting aside the first chapter reasons that maybe mm. we can go maybe we can go into it seems very filmic mm. does that is that did did you write it? i mean do you do you think it's a when you're writing are you thinking of it as a kind of visual medium are you seeing it played out in that way or is it not the case
2: um i i visualize it i mean this one is hard to say because it was set on a train yeah there were certain scenes where you realize you've got Rather, a lot of things going on in a very confined space, and <laughs> that was difficult. And I did actually watch, ironically, several films with trains in, like Murder on the Orient Express and Last and Train to Busan, a brilliant Korean
1: mm.
2: horror film to see what it would be like. But I also managed to miss out another well-known Korean film called Snowpiercer, which has almost ah. exactly the same plot, although their train is really big, so they cheat. They have specially made future train right yeah so yeah i think that i think that night train would be a great movie it's just unfortunate that there already is a movie about a bunch of people on a train full of horrors in a post-apocalyptic world moving across to the front to confront their destiny
0: oh there's got to be room for one more surely
2: well i hope so mine's based on the wizard of oz anyway is it oh yeah
0: i suppose I, it is yeah i, I let I, obviously it hadn't occurred to me but
2: I realised it about halfway through and then I realised there was a character called Garland and that was a subconscious oh, giveaway. Yes. wasn't deliberate. Wow. but
0: Yeah. Um, but equally, I mean, uh, again, I'm the Mule, I haven't read and I want to, um, I think, is it is it being reprinted at the moment?
2: Not so, to my uh, knowledge. Uh, well, I mean, I've got well, a maybe... box full in the attic so they can have those if they need them.
0: All right. Well, I, I might uh, ask you for some of those. <laughs> um, I, I'm, no, I'm sure our suppliers say that the mule is considering being reprinted or is being reprinted. Oh. So, um, so that would be nice. That'd be great. Um, but I, I think uh, you know, just no, looking at the storyline and knowing your approach, that that's that's a movie or a TV series, isn't it? I mean, you want to sell that to Netflix and.
2: Well, when I wrote it, I thought it could be a movie. I had a few things in mind, but. I mean, all my colours, the Mm. one before Night Train, I am adapting for a film for a company at the moment, and that is very interesting to do. doesn't mean it'll get made, but somebody's interested to see a script. And that's weird because it's a lot different. So you think of it like a film, but it's not actually the film that you end up writing. Mm.
0: Is there a, 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 given that you don't want to throw away words, is that quite difficult um, to change it and edit it and lose things?
2: No, I mean Philip Pullman. I read a quote of his when they made the film version of um, The Golden Compass, or whichever one it was. Mm. And a lot of people point complained about it being very really different to the book. And he did point out that if you like the book, you could always read that. Yes, <laughs> it's a different thing. It's like I don't really understand this obsession with people like, oh, I want it to be exactly like the book. It's not going to be. You know, it's like when people mm. change facts in films. It's a film. Yeah. It's different. So, for example, with All My Colours, the first thing that went was the setting. It was set in the 70s. Yeah. It cost a lot of money to film things in the 70s. Mm. And that doesn't really bother me, you know. I'm not a museum of the 70s. And so, yeah, dialogue has to change. Because in a book, well, most of a book isn't dialogue. Most of a book is what's going on in people's heads. And in a film, you can't have that unless you have a boring monologue. Mm. What sounds like snappy dialogue written down quite often sounds like a massive mouthful <laughs> yes. when somebody actually says it. Um, yes. and a film simply enough, a film is two hours long. If you read out a book, it's about eight hours. So hmm. films have to compress. You can't get a sense of action from reading out a book.
0: Um, I've, d- I've done what I've done before now. I just realized that I haven't actually asked you about your word or given you my word. Did you come along with a word?
2: Yes, I did.
0: What was your word then?
2: Wednesday.
0: Wednesday. <laughs> uh, Okay. Before I respond to that, I'm going to tell you what my word was. Okay. My word was going to be absurdism. Okay. Why is that? Well, because i i was I was trying to I was trying to um uh, uh, trying to light upon some word that kind of linked together, or at least my my uh, reception of your style. And I was trying to think. You know, I think do people describe your comedy as surreal? Do they describe it as? I don't know. I think absurdism is probably nearer the mark, but I don't know what you think.
2: Well, I can sort of relate to that because my favourite comedians were The Goons. I always preferred them even to Monty Python. I've always enjoyed surrealism Mm. and surreal comedy. So I like surreal writers like Leonardo Carrington. I've got some of her stuff. And one of my favourite, all-time favourite writers is a bloke called NS Simpson, who was a very big playwright in the 50s. I made a documentary about him. And... He was often lumped in with the absurdists, which is not something he liked very much. But his his comedy is fantastic. He's like sort of an intellectual Spike Milligan in a way.
0: Oh, I did read something about him recently, actually. Yeah, I think yeah, he was... yeah something in the paper about him. Uh, maybe in the London Review of Books or something like that fairly oh, right. recently.
2: Well, a friend of mine called Ian Greaves has done a great deal of work making sure that and if Simpson's stuff is in print, maybe there's something out. But he's one of the greats, an absolute hero of mine. So yeah, yeah, absurdism, as in the actual movement, I'm not a big fan of. It's mostly French people going, think about this. We're all rhinoceroses or something. But <laughs> actually, actual absurd, I mean, the only people who make me laugh, who literally make me laugh, are Vic and Bob. Right, good. Because Because with absurd comedy, you don't know what's going to happen next. Yeah. Whereas when you write comedy for a living, an awful lot of the time, you know what's going to happen
0: next. Yeah, I think that's... Yes, I think that's... So that's an accurate reflection, I think, of what um, maybe, I think, your, uh, your writing does because you don't want to be conventional. You're not a, you're not a joke writer in the sense that, at least the, I don't think you are, in the sense that you could uh, write a, a, a joke for Michael McIntyre I don't know maybe you could. I mean if he paid you I guess you would but you know it, it, that it's uh it's much more kind of in keeping with um things like Harry Hill's TV burp which you contributed to yeah. where it's it's pointing out not it's not pointing it's not satire in the sense you know you're pointing out the ridiculousness of, of reality but you're pointing out that everything is bizarre and uh cracked and doesn't make sense
2: yeah i think that's true um i've always liked that kind of logic
0: mm. and and uh without overlabouring it i think there's an element of that sort of unexpected twist and turn in night train as well yeah it, it, it's not it's not sci-fi it's not it's not entirely a horror it's uh you you, you know you don't know what's going to happen next you don't know which way it's going to go. Maybe that's why nobody bought it. Oh, dear. <laughs> well, I'll do my best to uh, to promote it. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I did actually recommend it to somebody um, uh, just before Christmas. They were looking for a present for someone. They were trying to describe what kind of uh, what kind of books they liked and what they'd read before. And I said, well, yeah, try this one. So oh, they that's did. That's very kind. Thank you. Well, it's one book, you know, and I know you, it's like, kind of, what, 50 pence or something.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, you you um, published a few of your books uh, through Unbound as well. Yes,
2: they're very nice people.
0: Did that did that work well for you?
2: Yeah, it did because I had written the mule and touted it round, and there'd been an agent who was interested, who then became not interested. But that at least gave me the anyway. So I crowd got it crowdfunded, and it came out, and it got reviewed. And that was really good for my confidence because it helped sales a bit. But it told me that if I wrote a book, somebody might actually like it. Mm. So that was brilliant. that gave me confidence. And I wrote another one for them. But it was just the confidence that, you know, I mean, it's exciting to have your own book. But yeah. It always feels a bit iffy when it's, you know, a relation of mine, I'm told, once had a book of poems published that they prayed for. And I'd always yeah. feel a bit, odd about that because it'd be lovely to have your stuff bound and on your shelf but also the idea that you paid for it yourself yeah it's a bit like hiring someone to praise you so which yeah. i have done so yeah <laughs> well Just... I,
0: I i will send you a copy of my self-published uh, poetry a uh, book well that would and, be lovely uh... <laughs> i don't believe you but um uh but you know it's it's not I will, but I but I know what you mean. There's a sort of uh, there's a, f- a feeling that yeah, kind of what right do you have to inflict this on the world? And the only reason, you know, the only reason you can do it is because you can afford to to get it printed. There is something about that endorsement from a an agent or a publisher.
2: It does help. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't mean it's like I put my first book, Sparks, on. The internet on oh, an e-novel, my wife's suggestion, and that sells about one copy a month. But mm. that was different for me because that was something that I felt was good and I wanted out there. And yeah. it's just the fact that maybe because it's on the line, that it's out there. And if people, in that case, if people do want it, they can get it. Yeah. But I wanted it out there because it seemed important to have something public.
0: And that's another one that sounds like it should be a film.
2: Yeah, I did write that as a film script once, but nothing happened. Um,
0: mm. It's quite funny, Sparks. So a couple of questions. What Are there other particular writers? You mentioned Vic and Bob at the moment who kind of don't, not, not really doing much at the moment, but uh, are there other sort of comedy uh, people or writers that you are admiring or you watch at the moment? I can't,
2: nothing comes to mind. I've sort of gone off American. I used to, I mean, I read, well, I like Armando stuff, obviously. Yeah. Um, Chris's stuff when he does it is very good. But at the moment, me and my wife are mostly watching Korean dramas. There's a bit of, they're just great and they're quite absurd and exciting mm. shows and very funny. But no, just the, I don't know, maybe I'm just a bit bored of, jaded of British and American comedies. I wouldn't, we did enjoy, I did enjoy the good, The Good Place. Mm. That was really good. I think American comedy still got a slight edge over British stuff. Yeah. I've enjoyed Would I Lie to You? Bob Mortimer's on that. Yes. Because again, that's absurd and unexpected. Mm. I'm always on the market for a decent comedy movie. Bits of, I'll say bits of Borat. Sometimes it's too much for me, but what he does is extraordinary. In,
0: In what way is it too much for you?
2: Um, I'm not going to go into detailed scenes. Some of it's it's just gross (laughs) out comedy. I'm not saying, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm quite happy to discuss bodily functions with people, but not always for comedy reasons. (laughs) Yeah. I don't really like gross out comedy. I realize many people do.
0: Yeah. But you can't please all the people, but, um, coming back to your, your thing about, um, how to write anything. Mm. Would, would, would you write anything? I mean any any brief, any you know, anyone who's paying, you'll write that thing
1: If
2: it was an interesting exercise mm. I mean, there are probably some polit- very few political things I wouldn't do, but you know, it's like if I was asked to write a speech for Hitler, I'd certainly think about it for a minute just to see what it would be like, but I wouldn't do it,
0: yeah. um,
2: <laughs> but no I mean, I am really interested in how things work you know, it's like, if you're Someone who likes building cars, you might be interested in building a terrible car. Mm. So yeah, I'd, I'd like to write poems if I could. I don't think I can. I've written wedding speeches for people. I've written T-shirt slogans. It's interesting all the different formats of writing. And it's just the same for me. It's reading a lot. Yeah. You know, if you want to be a writer, you should read everything from soup cans to romantic novels because you'll learn something, and you'll learn more if you write it.
0: Yeah. So what are you reading at the moment that you can recommend?
2: (laughs) I'm reading, I borrowed an Elizabeth Jane Howard novel off my wife because Elizabeth Jane Howard is a really good writer. Mm. I have got a book of, of, an old book of essays by Jonathan Meads. He's a very stylized writer. It's interesting to read his stuff and because it's historical context as well. I just read an old Stephen King novel. Called cycle of the werewolf you can guess what that was about <laughs> yeah that's pretty much my recent reading
0: so do you have a big pile of books next to your bed
2: i do and then i give up yeah. on most of them after a while like a lot of yeah, people I've nowadays been... you read a couple of pages and think this isn't for me
0: yeah <laughs> yeah i do tend to persist with books that um i find difficult i mean particularly books that have been recommended or you know uh, have some kind of historical weight behind them I'm reading something by George Simonon at the moment oh good I can't remember what it is it's a sort of collection of it oh it's I think it's his diaries oh interesting and uh yeah but they're they're kind of written almost deliberately not to be interesting I was reading a review mm. of them that I don't think you ever went back and corrected them or edited them for for publication it was just so in the course of writing, it, he'd obviously often go back and say, well, I know I said that, but I didn't mean that. And hmm. and, and, it, and it all happened very differently. And uh, But I can't be bothered to go back. and You know, that's kind of so I'd, I had to persist with that a bit because I don't really know much about him.
1: Hmm. Um,
0: but I think you're right. You know, the, the more you read and the more you understand. I think one of the things it does, uh, reading lots of stuff, is it kind of reassures you that what you write is is OK. Does that, if that makes sense.
2: Yeah. Oh, I read. A Swim in the Pond in the Rain by George Saunders. All right. Which is, you know, he wrote Lincoln in the Bardo and he's a lecturer. Yeah. And this is a book where he goes through some Russian short stories and analyzes them. And it's kind of a book about writing mm. and a book about, it's a useful book for people who want to write because it gives you writing hints as well. All right. And there was just one bit that really, a couple of bits that really resonated with me and one was a quote from some writer basically saying when a writer sits down they should not know what to write and i really agree with that i don't like over planning and you're talking about absurdism in night train hmm. and i think a lot of that is because you get to a point and you're like what happens next i know a robot bear attacks them <laughs> yes. and it's much more interesting to me than write, writing a list yeah. and going chapter nine robot bear
0: yeah but well, I think that's right, because uh, it comes back to the constraints, doesn't it? You know, you throw something in that's, that, that almost you didn't expect. Yeah, exactly. And you, and you have to deal with it. Um, it's like
2: you get to chapter nine, and there's a door, and you know that they all they have to do is go through the door and escape. And you write mm. chapter nine, the door turns into a dog and bites them. And <laughs> um, but the trick is to not actually have worked out what happens next. Just go, yeah, and just say to yourself, get out of that.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Um, before I forget then, why Wednesday?
2: Wednesday because, A, because the first time I was asked to do this by someone, people always pick slightly wry words or, you know, the kind of people <laughs> who like a murder of crows or a parliament. of. There's a kind of slight. Literary tweeness to certain words. Yeah, sorry about that. No, absurd isn't <laughs> accurate. That's good. Okay, so there's so- that. But also, Wednesday is a day that I really like. Um, when I was a kid, I went to, to a school which had Wednesday afternoons off, and my dad would give me money to go to a Greek cafe on my own where mm. I would have um, omelet and chips and a Coke. And I've always rather associated Wednesdays with that sense of freedom and omelets. Hmm. Yeah. Also, Wednesday's a really good word.
0: It is a good word. Yeah.
2: It just is.
0: It is true, and uh, and of course it it gives you that joke about the um, the academic who was given his timetable for the next term, and he was told he was teaching on a Wednesday, and he said, "Well, I don't want to work on a Wednesday." And they said, "Why not?" He said, "Because it ruins two weekends."
2: I don't get it at all.
0: Oh, okay. No, well I'll mean? edit it. What does it mean? Working on a wed working on a Wednesday ruins two weekends, the weekend before and the weekend afterward. No?
2: I really don't I don't understand that. That's exciting. No. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Um
0: No no it's not it's fine. It's fine. It's it's really about the indolence of uh of academics, but,
2: Oh I see. But, oh right. Yeah, I mean I can relate I could relate to that now, academics being what they are, but no, at least I've heard a joke about Wednesday. They're not very common.
0: Yeah, well, I'll definitely edit that out. just, um, put, in, why <laughs> don't you
2: just put in some laughter
0: from a record. Anyway, um, listen, I, I've kept you for an hour, but uh, I, I've enjoyed it. And, I, and I've enjoyed being able to uh, tell you what I think about Night Train, which I really enjoyed. And as I say, I genuinely did sit down. One evening, and uh, read it from cover to cover, not because I had to, but because I wanted to. So, thank you. Oh, that's really kind. Well, thank you. Not at all. And um, yes, we well, uh, you know, we'll definitely talk about getting copies of of the mule and other things. And I uh, hope we can well, let me know sp- spread goes. the word.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Let me know, and I'll send you one.
0: Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. well that was awkward wasn't it but anyway after we stopped recording uh, david said how much he enjoyed the conversation and uh i i, I i'd enjoyed it as well apart from that moment it, i think it took david a while to warm up because i think you describe his character as dry but he's very clever and very funny and one day it'd be great to get him back to talk more about the craft of writing hopefully we can uh, persuade him to come up from his uh, His home to to Tunbridge to talk about um, the skills of writing. Uh, You can check out some uh, links to his books, uh, books that we mentioned as well, in the information for this podcast, this episode. And uh, even now, we've got another tremendous guest lined up. So be sure to subscribe here on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts um, so you don't miss it. And uh, remember, Ideas in Writing is supported by Mr. Books Bookshop in Tunbridge, home of independent, inspiring and imaginative books, gifts and conversation, including an exclusive range of book-related and Mr. Books-inspired T-shirts. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time. <laughs> If you enjoyed this podcast you can support us you just need to click on the link and become an acast supporter it's a one-off donation you can give as much or as little as you like and uh, there's no commitment but it certainly helps us to keep producing these podcasts so thank you very much